0: Welcome to the Breaking Stars podcast where we make it easy for you to break into tech. All you need to do is share your goals or challenges with me, Ruben, at BreakingIntoStartups.com and I'll make sure that you make it to the other side. Today we're going to talk about how corporate training is broken and issues with our current education system with the CEO of a company called Catalyte, based in Baltimore. Catalyte is amazing because they essentially... Identify people that have the aptitude to learn how to code. They train these everyday people to become software engineers, guarantee them paid internships, and then hires them as staff developers to work with clients like Under Armour, Nike, eBay, and other major brands. For those of you that don't know, great developers are like great musicians and they only get better through playing. And it's important for people to make space for people to play in different bands or work at different companies or be around different people. And we're going to talk a little bit deeper about um, why Cadillac chose to do this in the post-industrial American city and how they are focusing on the the fact that talent is abundant. Um, They are building scrum teams as a service. It's an amazing episode. And if this is the first time you've listened to the podcast, make sure that you like our page on Facebook, you join our community on Facebook, you... Send me an email again, R-U-B-E-N at BreakingInStars.com if you have any feedback. And without further ado, let's break in. Growing up, we're told that in order to be successful, you need to be a banker, a doctor, or a lawyer. That's what the gatekeepers want you to think. But we're part of something bigger. We're part of a technological revolution. Either you're at the table or on the table. Get in the end. 10X. Yo, 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 this is Ruben Harris. I'm here with the homies Arch and Timor Meister, and this is the Breaking Stars Podcast. Timor, can you please tell the people what we're doing today?
1: Yeah, so this we're out here on a Sunday. We recorded a bunch of episodes before this one, and we have a guest who is who flew in from Baltimore. And right now, we are also have a camera crew from Brazil. Recording this, so shout this, out eight hero. Yeah, eight, uh, shout out to eight hero. Once we're done recording the episode, we're gonna have video footage, so make sure to go online on our Facebook page and check it out. But we're very excited for the guests. So without further ado, Arthur, can you please introduce the guest? Yeah, for sure. So we have a really treat, a really big treat for you guys. We have Jacob Sue, who is the CEO of Catalyte. But Before we get into it, I wanted to to give a little intro about where he's from. He's from San Mateo, and his family actually immigrated from Taiwan. He spends his time between here in the Bay Area and Baltimore. And similar to us, he was an ex iBanker. And then he went on to to start four companies with his latest company, Symbio, doing offshore development. And he was able to grow the revenue from 10 million to over 600 million in less than 11 years. And then his company got acquired in 2016 for over a billion dollars. And so, what's really cool about Jacob is that he's the CEO of Catalyte, which has a really unique way of training people's software development skills. They basically go out in the world and find working class people who are looking for a better future, acquire new skills. They help them become great software engineers. And he actually has numbers to show that these folks are performing people who have traditional CS degrees, which is unbelievable. So, yeah, welcome. And kind of uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself and how did you get out here? Well, thank you. You know, so
2: it's been a real joy ride for me to be leading Catalyte for almost two years now. And as you mentioned, I mean, it's a company that is doing something that just blew my mind. So, frankly, when I had left my last company, I was thinking I was just going to chill out and just retire and just hang out for a while. But I found out about this company in Baltimore, started by a Harvard professor, Michael Rosenbaum. That was using AI and predictive analytics to find remarkable people from all walks of life that could be great software developers, right? And I couldn't really believe it. when I heard about it. I was like, "That doesn't sound right," you know. And I, I basically went out there, and basically called BS on it. When I went and visited the company and visited the team, you know, within five minutes, I was blown away, and I realized, you know, I had to go all in and really come back and, and be part of this company and be part of what was happening. You know, but this is a company that you know we are using AI to identify exceptional people. Really remarkable people who really don't, may not have the pedigree to be great software developers, but have the aptitude, have the ability to do it. Frankly, I always say they have a superpower that they may not have realized that they had before. And we invest in them, right? So we we find them, we bring them into a 16 week program where we essentially put them through a full computer science degree. Mm -hmm. So it's not like kindergarten engineering. It's not like I'm just taking, you know, teaching you to code in one platform and then, you know, go copy a website. This is a real, computer science degree or full stack development that they mm-hmm. go through and then what we do is that when they complete the program we hire them as our employees so they're guaranteed a job as long as they complete the training mm-hmm. and they are apprentices for 2 years after which they become basically staff developers for the company now they're, you know now what's interesting about this model is that we've proven sort of three interesting surprises that comes out of this pretty simple business model the first surprise is that you know we've shown that these developers who come from all walks of life from these unconventional backgrounds are really outperforming traditional software development teams by a major factor, right? The results have been outstanding. So we've had clients now publish data about this at Gartner conferences that have shown, on average, our teams were three times more productive as measured on a cost per Agile story point compared to tier one sort of companies like Accenture and and IBM Global Services, that that level Mm -hmm. of sort of consultants. They've shown that our teams were two times more productive compared to tier one offshore companies. Um, which is a really big deal because now we can show literally dollar for dollar compared to an offshoring company, our teams are producing two times the output of an offshore company. You know, higher quality, faster velocities—typically th- thirty mm-hmm. percent faster velocities in sprints. You know, lower defect rates, faster ramp-up times. I mean, across the board, the results are
1: pretty yeah. astounding. And to break it down for our audience, basically, you guys take people off the streets. Like, you don't need to have a college degree. You could be literally a factory worker, and your factory is shut down, and you're looking for your next gig. All they do is take an assessment online, right? And then you guys look at different attributes, measure them. And then the ones that get accepted, they go through a 16-week apprenticeship, and then they get hired by your company to work on on projects for your clients. And some of your clients are like Nike and big corporations. And so you pretty much guarantee them that they're going to have a job and they'll get to work on these cool projects with major brands and get that experience, which is unbelievable. Can you talk a little bit about kind of the, so you mentioned they get paid during the apprenticeships. Can you talk a little about a little bit about the results of the program? Like, what do these graduates look like once they like finish the sixteen weeks?
2: Well, you know, I at the end of sixteen weeks, right? They're basically apprentices, so, mm-hmm. so they end then go into a two-year apprenticeship with the company. But you know, at the end of the sixteen weeks, I consider them basically. We call them developer level ones, right? Mm-hmm. So they are basically entry-level software developers. Now, I like to use the analogy that great developers are like great musicians, right? In the sense Mm -hmm. that, you know, I can go through a training program and learn to play guitar chords in 16 weeks, you know, in a class, but I don't become a great musician unless I jam in different bands, right? I got to play different kind of music. Mm -hmm. I got to play with different bands, different levels of skills, and you get better through playing, Mm -hmm. right? And you only get better, you become a master by playing, not Mm -hmm. because of what school you went to.
1: Exactly. hundred percent. When it comes to people that you do accept and... Arthur mentioned that there's a like a small percentage of people who pass the assessment, but the ones that do pass the assessment, how do you ensure that they keep putting in the hours and putting in the work and that when you're spending your resources paying them while they're still learning the skill, they're actually doing the work and eventually they'll be able to be hireable and work for the companies?
2: Yeah, well the training actually is full-time classroom training, so it's 9 to 5 or 9 to 4 typically, Monday through Friday. So it's full-time. For people. So people do have to commit for 16 weeks at, at a minimum of being full time in a classroom. But what's actually unique about this model is that we don't necessarily train people to, let's say, be a coder, right? Which is one of the key distinctions that we think about vis a vis a boot camp, right? We're not trying to just teach you to code. We're tra- teaching you how to be a real developer, right? Which means that, you know, we're teaching you, first of all, full stack software development, back end, front end, database design, the whole shebang, right? In terms of engineering but also more importantly is that we are training people as a cohort. And I think that's actually one of the reasons why we have this incredible success rate. By the way, today, 96% of the people who enter our training complete it, right? So that's almost everybody finishes. And I think it, we finish because there's a very important group dynamic that makes this happen is that they're brought into a cohort which is really like a unit, right? It's like a, you know, using a college as like a, a pledge class, right? You know, fraternity or, or, or platoon sorority.
1: or like when you started the military. That's right. That's yeah.
2: right. And so it's more important that they as a group are able to master and complete each new concept as a group and as a team versus what they individually do. And that's actually one of the key reasons why I think we have such an incredible success rate. I also think of it from just a social aspect of think about, it, you know, a lot of the people who come into our program They didn't have any, they didn't have go to college, right? A lot of people come in, they may not have the peer group that actually makes this profession stick. So one of the things that actually we also do is that by being together in this cohort, they actually get a new peer group. They get their own social network, right? Their own professional network of other developers who've actually now gone through the same transformation. But to your point about, you know, how do we make sure that they work hard? I'll tell you, I've never had that problem because the people who come in here, they are so motivated. These people will run through the wall to be successful. And think about it, you know, for the typical person coming in, they're coming in an entry level job, but we can prove statistically, objectively within five to eight years of coming out of our apprenticeship program, they're making six figure salaries, yeah. right?
1: almost guaranteed. And right. that's uh, not in the Bay Area, that's in Baltimore. Like, in uh, wow. It's all over the country. Yeah. <laughs> it was a lot farther. Yeah. Uh, and and speak,
0: right. speak, I think it'd be good to touch on that. So like there's a lot of aspects that are not traditional that a lot of people wouldn't expect. Why did you choose Baltimore?
2: Yeah, well, that's a great question. So the company was founded by Michael Rosenbaum who was a you know who's a Harvard professor he was actually a White House fellow in the Clinton administration oh, wow. so he was in DC at the time mm-hmm. and when he ended up starting this company he was looking for a post industrial american city so okay. he's looking for a city that was really a manufacturing city but had seen the manufacturing decline or move out yep. and Baltimore is you know the closest city so that was the reason
0: Got it got it is that also kind of why you selected Chicago as well for the new
2: That's right. So yeah, when we launched recently in Chicago, you know, similar dynamics. Although Chicago probably has a different for Baltimore in that there's a lot of Fortune 500 companies that have headquarters there. You know, our strategy as a company is that we're going to launch 20 development centers across 20 major metropolitan areas in the U.S. Wow! Um, And the goal really is that we're trying to flip the frankly the offshoring industry on its head, where we're going to make it so that each development center basically they serve their region, right? So the goal really is to use proximity. As one of the big reasons, drivers of performance for our clients. So for us, we're setting up centers in big, you know, big metro areas that have lots and lots of big companies headquartered there, because then we can create a much more, we call a co-creative relationship, a much more collaborative relationships with our clients than you know the typical sort of yeah. company that sends. Do people
1: work, work remotely or on site for your clients? Both. So I
2: today about half of the work that we do is done at the client site. So mm-hmm. we deploy full Scrum teams. You know, with our clients, the other half is done in our development centers, where mm-hmm. our clients really just would rather have the team sitting with us. Mm-hmm. But again, that's where proximity is a big enabler. In my old business, offshoring, it was really, really difficult to be able to get consultants or engineers to work on site with clients. Mm-hmm. Here, we're completely easy because all of our workforces develop locally. Right, so whenever we go into a new city, what's unique of our model is that we're building the workforce everywhere we go. Right, we're not trying to hunt and recruit from the same talent mm-hmm. pools everybody else is. We're building it with local. People in the communities that our clients are working in.
0: Yeah, can you talk a little bit more about the relationship with your clients and like how that was developed and why that's so important? I mean, like outside of the obvious, you know, having an opportunity after the program, like how did you cultivate that and why are they so receptive to it versus like other people that may have tried to do something like this? That's a great question. Well,
2: as I say that, you know, the the clients have remember the whole industry, right, is been really constrained by the same problem which is talent where are they going to get talent so it's actually the whole industry has viewed talent as being a scarce resource right scarcity so because of that you look at clients and you know they're paying exorbitant rates for individual consultants they're forced to work in a way that we call staff augmentation which is let me hire one person at a time and you know each person is a snowflake in that regard so it takes a lot of time and a lot of overhead to do that and then it's very difficult for them to actually keep and retain people Our model is vastly different. So, first of all, our business at a very simple level is that we're deploying Scrum teams as a service, right? So, our clients engage us for full teams, right? So, we typically put a team, smallest configuration, maybe six or seven person team, but we have clients now who are asking for hundreds of people, right? But what we do is we deploy a full team. What's also unique about this model is that we allow our clients to hire our people away, right? So, we actually have an open door policy, our clients. As long as they sign it, work with us on the, on the subscription basis. Essentially, they can cherry pick people out of our teams and turn and convert them into full time employees for them. Wow. So,
1: it, and that's pretty unique with consultants, usually, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. You know, because again, our the fundamental difference is that we think talent is abundant, right? We think the talent that you need for this kind of work. Is abundant in every market. Right, Mm -hmm. you just need to be able to unlock that talent. Yeah, Yeah. and you
1: and you talked about Scrum teams. Uh, I actually used to work as a Scrum master, so I know what it means. But for those for people who are just tuning in, like, what's a Scrum team, and like, what's the Agile approach versus like waterfall and other methodologies?
2: Yeah, I mean, Agile basically is you know the predominant model by which companies build uh, software today, right? So you know, Agile just basically means uh, lean learning loops. You know, there is that book. You know, a couple of years ago, Eric Ries wrote *The Lean Startup*, yep. which you know popularized it in terms of that approach to starting a company. Yep. But it's really based on the same principle. There are ten agile principles, but at its heart, is really is it's really kind of being customer focused, building things with the user, you know, with mm-hmm. the user in mind first, and basically iterating, right? So you you basically you build test and learn, right? You build and you create these learning loops with your clients. Mm. Now with software development, that approach is kind of the way that you build software today. Typically, we put full scrum teams in there, might be comprised of a scrum master or a project manager. You'd have sort of a BA or half a BA to business analyst as needed. You'd have an architect supporting as needed, but then you essentially have a full team of software developers. You know, Typically- what makes our model work also, and to be really transparent, is that we don't try to hide from our clients that what we do, right? We tell them exactly how our program works. We typically give, deliver a team, you know, like I said, probably six or seven people is sort of the minimum configuration. You'll typically have one very senior person on the team. That person probably has eight plus years of, you know, software development experience, matched up with probably two sort of mid level or experienced developers, typically people with, call it anywhere from three to eight years of, of experience. A mashup of four juniors, right? Mm -hmm. Four four apprentices, associates in our in our world. And that's sort of the the standard configuration.
1: What are the dynamics on the actual engineering team? So if there's four juniors and there's some senior people, are there certain tasks that go towards the senior folks? Or is it kind of you you work on whichever stories you want to work on?
2: It really is. You work on whatever stories you you work Mm -hmm. on, right? Are assigned to you. Now there probably is some traffic routing that happens, right, mm -hmm. at the at the project level. But no, we try to treat people as much as um, you know. Again, I, I think of it. It's, it's not so much about juniors versus seniors, mm-hmm. right? I think a lot of it is you need to give people that environment where the juniors who probably are really have something to prove, who really want to work hard. You give them the guidance to sort of do things the right way, and you mm-hmm. make sure you give them the guardrails not to make you know mm-hmm. you know mistakes that can be that, that you can avoid.
1: And earlier in the episode, you talked about the military and like how they, maybe we talked about it in the pre-chat, but basically what you're doing is that instead of this alternative model where like as an individual, I might go through a boot camp and then I'm looking for junior or like entry-level roles at companies, you kind of flip it on its head and it almost create this team mentality similar to the military where they're just taking everyone who might be out of high school, out of college, and then putting them through training Adding the right mix of leadership and more senior personnel, you're able to now create teams that are effective. And when they work together, they also understand each other's strengths and weaknesses. So then they're able to perform at a higher efficiency than like a single person who is just like, just learned JavaScript and wants to contribute to a team they've never worked with. So I think that's a very creative model. Do you think this model can scale to companies that are not like companies that are? just like looking to hire juniors and create these sort of pods internally? Or like how does a company like Facebook or Google replicate the same approach?
2: Well, I think it's really a systems change that we're trying to make mm-hmm. here, right? So I think there's a couple of components to making this whole model work. There's, a force, of course, the selection, right? So you got to find the people who do have the ability, right? And I, I believe not everyone can be a software developer, but a great software developer can come from any background, right? Mm-hmm. So you know, finding the right the right set of abilities, right? I think coming in is one part of it. I think then there is the training, right? Which is, which frankly, most com- most companies, I'm going to say that most institutions get training wrong in my mind because, and I, I include in universities in part of this, right? Because there's this orientation with a lot of learning institutions that training is a person, an individual absorbing some content or material, right? So it's really kind of a one way relationship between you know the institution that's teaching and the student. When in reality, you think about how we've all learned. We've actually learned as much from our peers, from sort of our, our friends. We've learned so much of it on our own. Quite frankly, and most very successful people I know probably went to half or less of the college classes yep. that they went that they were that they were going to, right? So it's not necessarily about absorbing a particular set of material. You know, so you know, and I think that applies in the corporate trading world as well. So how do you give people a cohort, right? How do you give people that environment, mm-hmm. that peer group, so that they can learn and actually activate that learning, you know, in a more kind of, you know, holistic way.
1: Yeah. And it's it's also, it sounds like it's learning by doing, not just by listening. Exactly. Because a lot of the time, if you asked uh, anyone, like, what did you learn in college? M- m- there might be some highlights from each like subject that you took that you can recall. But for most of it, you probably, like, unless you have th- photographic memory, you probably are not remembering those details versus from personal experience, going through a bootcamp, I may not remember every single piece, but because it was done by doing, like I remember the projects, the approach of how I solved that problem, and I'm able to now apply it to other problems that come up down the line. Yeah. Do you exactly. think companies will eventually like start the training, like kind of start creating these spots outside of them, like kind of start training and growing these apprenticeships internally? Or do you think the the model that you have kind of becoming really good at identifying people, training them and kind of providing these scrum teams could be the next evolution of software engineering teams.
2: I hope so. Right? So <laughs> I, I hope it's I hope it's the latter, right? And, uh-huh. and so that's why I think we're able to work with so many incredible companies now is because we're helping them to create that transformation and systems change to some extent by doing it with them, like doing it for them initially, and then doing it with them, and eventually they can do it themselves. But on the back end, I mean, there's one other aspect to the systems change that I think is really important that I never really paid attention to myself until... Coming to Catalyze, and something I've really learned, which is the importance of culture. So one of the reasons why, and again, I use this mu- this, uh, this band analogy, right? This music, musician analogy. I love that analogy. <laughs> yeah, and you know that analogy is that you got to have the space to play in different bands, right? You got to like mix it up and play different bands, play do different gigs. And most corporations are not geared up for that, right? So most corporations, why it's very difficult to be entry level to get an entry level job in today's or in today's world, is that I think what's happened in the last. 30 years or so is that we've moved it to this just in time mentality to hiring, right? To professional hiring, where essentially it's it's become much more transactional, right, in terms of a person's job. People don't go to companies for, you know, lifelong careers anymore. Mm-hmm. And as such, companies have turned around and also they don't provide lifelong career paths for people, right? So it's become much more transitional, transactional. And I think because of that, you don't really have this nurturing culture to bring Apprentices and juniors up in large organizations anymore you know mm-hmm. there used to be things like management training programs and stuff like that where they rotated people, and the companies just don't really do that as much anymore mm-hmm. I mean I think that's one of the problems it seldom i've I've never seen it even happen in i t right so i mean you know I'm talking about corporate in general now, if you go to like the i t or the software engineering organizations in these companies, it's even more. Backwards, right? It's it's even less geared up for sort of taking in entry level developers. So that's, again, one of the things that we're trying to do is that, you know, there's a cultural aspect of it and there's really kind of giving people that space and opportunity to
1: do different things. And, like, on the topic of scaling and also making an impact, so you got, since you're focused on people from all sorts of backgrounds, what type of impact are you already seeing with communities in Baltimore where these people are like coming from and? Kind of getting these software engineering jobs, and then ultimately making six figures. What type of change are you seeing within those neighborhoods as, as a result?
2: Well, you know, I, I can't speak for neighborhoods yet because mm-hmm. you know we're literally still hundreds of employees, okay, right? So Not thousands. Hopefully, yeah. you know, hopefully in a couple of years, I think we'll be there. But I can tell you, I can see the change in my people. Mm-hmm, right. Yeah. So you see people come in. You know, first they're training; they're one person, and you know, after 16 weeks, they're a different person, and after two years, they're a completely different person, mm-hmm. and it's amazing, you know. And so that's—I'll tell you—I don't really feel like a CEO of a company so much as I i really feel sometimes like I'm a pastor in a church, right? Because <laughs> I go there, and everybody has, first of all, this incredible transformation story, mm-hmm. right? Everybody has a hero's journey that they've wow. that they've mm-hmm. gone through. And, you know, I could tell you stories all day long of like each person, like each person I've met has had this amazing story. And I just, every time I I feel a little bit, you know, tired or something, I just sit down with one of our people and I just get totally
0: jazzed. Can can you tell like a little bit of a story just so people could get a sense of like who these people are and like what type, you don't have to call them up by name if it's sensitive, but like just getting a sense of like the type of background that these people have so that people could get inspired by that hero journey. Sure. Well, I'll
2: tell you, there's been lots of extreme, if you go to our website, you'll see that there's. You know, there's a couple profiles that we have up there. You know, we have a person named Carolina Canis, who's this amazing person. You know, she was a musician. Right? So she was a she she had learned uh, she was a professional flutist. Nice. You know, she's also an immigrant from Dominican Republic. Okay. And she was, you know, she was one of those people who she she her passion was music, but she couldn't really get a job to support herself as a musician. So she ended up just taking lots of odd jobs. You know, Mm -hmm. and when we found her, she was working in a call center. Right. So just Mm -hmm. like taking calls in a call center. She took our test, our assessment, and did did really well came in and so there's something you know so initially if you look at her background, like there's nothing in her background that would have predicted for success. If you looked at her resume, you would never have hired her to be a software developer. but once she came in, there's some, certain things that we uncovered that was interesting about her. first of all, she spoke six different languages right it's like, okay, wow, that's yeah. really amazing, yeah. And then we found out, oh, by the way, you know, her father and two brothers were professional software developers. Wow. <laughs> so there was something in, you know, in, in the blood. Yeah. Something happening <laughs> there. So, so, you know, and today she's, she's, a you know, she's become one of our sort of, you know, senior developers in the company. Yeah. And I saw this transformation. I literally, when I, I came on, she was just coming out of our, our training program. And yeah. I was just amazed that, um, you know, you see this transformation. Yeah. You know?
1: then, what What role does mentorship play in, at your company? Oh, it's a huge part of it. So that's one of the things that I
2: think culturally is so different about Catalyte is that, first of all, from the moment you come in as a trainee, you're assigned a mentor, right? We call them, o, you know, um, O3 is one-on-ones or basically a mentor. And um, throughout their entire career in the company, they're given, you know, a mentor. So it doesn't even matter if you're a senior person, you still have a mentor, right? Like that. Yeah. So you're con- you're given the sort of this, yeah this mentor that sort of is there as your advocate. But I think it's more important. It's more than that. Even it's really the culture of the company. One thing that you feel at Catalyte that I've never felt anywhere else is this propensity to help each other. Yep. Right? There's real culture of helping each other. You yep. see that, and that's very different from other engineering organizations that I've led. You know, you go there, and a lot of engineering organizations, especially the ones who are made up of the most pedigreed people, mm-hmm. are usually like they're hoarding information. Right, information is power in a lot of big organizations. Right, yeah. Um, so. Our people are vastly different, right? Because they've all gone through this journey together. They really believe in sharing, and it does. It's not just seniors to juniors; it's also juniors to seniors, right? Yep. So there may be a junior developer who is an expert in the latest, you know, version of Angular, and there's a senior guy who needs to pick that up for his next, uh,
1: his next engagement. So you're learning not just from people that are above you, but from people on your level and a few steps behind, like potentially behind. Absolutely, it. and
2: okay. I'll tell you, I learn a lot from our people. I've, yeah, I have yeah. learned so much in the last two years. I mean, even as a CEO. I've gotten so much out of it. I'll tell you, I've learned so many things.
0: I love it. And I remember in the pre chat you were also just talking about class issues. And I think it'd be good to just kind of elaborate on like some of the things that you've seen in that regard as well.
2: Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that has been really an eye-opener for me, right? And again, I'm like a typical Silicon Valley product of Silicon Valley. I grew up here most of my life. And I didn't really recognize some of the, you know, I didn't recognize some of really kind of think some of the fundamental problems that our country has been going through, and I think a big, for me, a big root issue is the issue of class. Right, is that we as a country we don't like to talk about class. Mm-hmm. We have this Horatio Alger sort of like belief that anybody can lift them up themselves up by their bootstraps. They work hard and they got gumption and they can do it. In reality, I mean that's kind of a myth. Right, it's actually been yes. been proven lately, recently. I think there's a Harvard study that came out a couple of years ago. that showed we were socially economic mobile society. During the Civil War than we are today. Right? So it's even harder today to really kind of move from the let's say the bottom of the economic pyramid to the top of the pyramid. It's actually very very
0: rare, wow. right?
2: You know what ends up really happening is you kind of if you think about it as like different slices, you kind of move from one slice to the next slice in a generation, right? Yeah. You don't you rarely go from the bottom to the top, yeah. And so that was sort of always something for me as an immigrant coming to this country. I thought a lot about right. Is just yeah. maybe because like. As an immigrant, you know you're, you know, we came in working class. My parents were work, were really working class, and you know, you got to see how you know class works,
0: mm-hmm. right? Because um, totally. you're
2: observing it. So I sort of have saw this in a much bigger way in Baltimore, where I think a lot of times, you know, and you look at hiring practices, we're reinforcing that class issue, mm-hmm. right? Today, when I've now had the opportunity to, you know, to really can be friends with people who nobody in their family's ever gone to college, mm-hmm. right? Or I've now been, you know, been able to be with friends who literally were living in cars and you know, were able to kind of become professionals from there. You learn a lot, right? Totally. And you see what are some of those barriers that we as society have actually put up. I think a big part of that is, frankly, resumes and pedigree. So you know, we talk around, I mean, you think about resumes. This is the fundamental thing that our founder really found when did in his research at Harvard almost two decades ago was, you know, today, if you look at hiring practices... You look at the resume, you look at job interviews, what they're really doing isn't, there's actually no, very little statistical correlation between what's on your resume and a successful outcome on a job. What it actually is doing is reinforcing class biases, Mm -hmm. right? So, you know, we talk about things like race, or we talk about things like where you grew up, or, you know, we pick up on these social, subtle signals of class, right? Mm -hmm. And that's really what people are sussing out when they're kind of hiring people. So by design, what we've tried to do is break that completely, right? So for us, I mean, first of all, by design, we don't track anything about an applicant. So a person, all you need to apply to do is to apply at the company is an email address, right? We don't want to know how old you are. We don't want to know what school you went to. We don't want to know what your ethnic or race is, ethnicity or race is, your gender. We don't want to know any of that stuff, right? We just want to know. We only find out about a person after they've been selected, right? So- and to put a fine point on it, we'd have no recruiters in the company, right? So our, our our workforce is basically programmatically hired by software, right? <laughs> Which is pretty crazy. But here's the other, here's the crazy part of it, right? So this is the big, second big surprise. And for me, the aha moment of why I had to really come all in into this company and, and be part of this is we've been able to now prove that when you take a pedigree out of it, you take you know, the bias out and you hire people based on aptitude, basically how they do in this assessment. We end up with a workforce that mirrors the demographics of the community that we hire from. Yep. So Baltimore, you know, Baltimore metro area is 28% African-American. Yep. We've shown now over 10 years, we've had 27% African-American developers on our yep. workforce there. We're not quite a gender parity, but we've got about 31% right. female developers, which is probably 10x the average. You know, the average age of people coming to program is 33 years old. Interesting. So it's not like, you know, it's not the high school it's not like a college kid or a high school. It's really kind of people looking for that second career. By the way, I mean, it's funny enough, we actually have that age range goes anywhere from, you know, 17 year olds to 70 year olds. We've had a 70 year old person go through our program. Wow. Wow.
0: That's that's, impressive. And um, earlier to in the pre-chat again, you were talking a lot about, you know, the future and how coding is starting to be taught in second grade. And because of like the phenomenons related to the fourth industrial revolution and, jobs are going away or jobs being created and destroyed. Um, and you brought up a concept called context switching that we haven't really discussed on the podcast before. I may be pronouncing it wrong, but it'd be helpful for you to kind of like elaborate on that and just also just break down just what's happening again because um, we we can't say it enough. Like, so people are aware of, of what's going on.
2: Yeah, well, I think of, uh, so much of the jobs of the future really is contextual, right? It really, your knowledge and your ability to do something depends on the context that which in which case you're applying that knowledge, right? And if you think about, you know, most of the jobs, the most of the sort of professions that is, you know, require you to switch between lots of different contexts. Right. So when you think about a problem, the way you think about it in one industry is going to be different from the way you think about it in another industry. The way you might think about it depending on sort of your audience, right? The audience that you're talking to, right? The context switches. So I think that that skill set to actually be able to recognize context to to really be able to scan and absorb and understand the context that you're in and then switch and meet that that is actually something that is a skill that really is uniquely human. It's one of those things. Actually, it makes it so that I think it's very difficult for you know AI versus humans. I actually you know I would actually vote for the humans because I actually think it's very difficult to automate that kind of
1: decision making. Maybe you can give some examples of professions, I guess that have multiple, like I guess that asks the person performing the task to switch between multiple context Cs or context I, or uh, the ones that just kind of stick to a single context?
2: I don't know. I think of a, you know, let's use, a, this is breaking into startups, right? So let's use a startup entrepreneur, right? Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah.
1: Um,
2: you know, the pivot, right? The pivot is a context yeah.
1: switch, yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah. right? So I think of it as that, you know, you have a certain, you have, and I think so much of innovation. If you think about innovation and break, you know, especially those breakthrough innovations, it's seldom guys in lab coats kind of thinking about a problem and solving it, right? It's yeah. usually this bumping around that happens, right? It's like, I am an expert in one area and I just randomly bumped into another expert in a different area and suddenly our our, our knowledge mixes and it becomes a whole new thing. And I think, you know, and that's, those are all examples of context switching, right? Yeah, it's yeah. like, you've suddenly taken something that you may have been really you understand cold in one context, but now you've totally flipped it in a new yeah, way. Yeah. and I
1: think the ability to react to your circumstances is something so like innately humane, right? Like you teach much, like a uh, algorithm to do a certain thing, but if something switches around, even like the inputs, it's not going to be able to do anything and react to the changes in the environment. Whereas humans can actually do that, and we're able to tweak our like internal algorithms just by a little bit, so we could apply. The same way of solving to a different problem or different context, and it's an interesting comparison between kind of what automation can do and what type of context it could help, uh, like make them um, like alleviate some of the pressures. At the same time, it's not going to be able to solve like the same algorithm. is not going to be able to solve multiple contexts at the same time. So for the jobs of tomorrow, like yeah, it's true that some some jobs will be eliminated, but at the same time, there's also not so many other jobs where that context switching is going to be key and. It's amazing that you guys are also like taking people and giving them these, like kind of almost making them realize the superpower they have to context switch and also apply their creativity to these problems that they're going to be able to have for the rest of their life now, right? Absolutely. Well, uh, yeah. I'll tell
2: you, I mean, it's, I, I promise I wouldn't share too much about what we do on this assessment. But I'll give you <laughs> one example of an interesting way of how we're assessing a person's yeah. ability to switch, right? in context is that there's a section on on this assessment that's basically like logic puzzles, mm-hmm. right? But it's not obvious right so again the the assessment there's really not we're not really watching what answers you're putting on we're actually watching how you solve the yep. problem so one of the things that's really interesting is so there's a set of logic puzzles in where you're go th- you're doing one puzzle one way and you need to trial and error your way through it and you mm-hmm. find one approach and you solve it and then you're going to get the, you move on you're going to have the second puzzle it'll on the outset look the same but there's something different about it right and what we want to see is that you actually figure out that it's, there's something different about it and that you change your approach, right? Mm-hmm. You change, your assumptions change, right? And then yeah. your approach changes because of it.
0: Yeah.
2: So it's stuff like that, right? Yeah, that you're sure. really trying to assess and I, for I think
0: that's interesting because like a lot of times in the interview, when people are screening you, they're not always looking for the right answer. They're just seeing how you think about things. Yes. And so like talking out loud, being able to just kind of like explain your thought process about how you're thinking about answering the question gives you a lot of points. So
1: absolutely. Yeah. I'm curious with your assessment have you tried getting like existing engineers with traditional CS degrees to take it and see if they like pass at a higher rate cuz like cuz I guess like that's yeah. what you're targeting right like people that could do software engineering So it's funny so I mean it, it is interesting so I will tell you
2: I have had a number of you know Stanford Carnegie Mellon certainly Harvard computer scientists take this thing and you know it's a mixed bag you know mm-hmm. so I'll tell you that a lot of people don't pass it don't <laughs> do that well on it Interesting <laughs> Now again, I, I'm not going to say that this is the end all be all. Like you know, just yeah, because yeah. you haven't passed assessment, you can't be a great developer. That's yeah, not yeah. what I'm saying at all, right? But it is just interesting, right? That there's you know there's a certain profile that we're looking for that we found works well that can absorb this. You know, who can become a developer really quickly. But that's not to say that you know just because you can't do that, yeah. you didn't pass this, you couldn't. Do and
1: it. I was going to ask you. So it sounds like you're or from what you mentioned earlier, you accept a small percentage of people who take the test or who are able to pass the assessment. And similar to coding boot camps, they tend to accept about five percent of people who apply. And which means that in both cases are, there's more than 90% of people who want to have these types of jobs that get rejected. So what do you think are those core issues that are that might be holding those people back that they can work on? And how as a society can we help those people get into these roles? Cause usually those are the people who need it the most. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, you know, I would say that a big part of the population that doesn't, you know, frankly, well, first of all, just completing the mm-hmm. test, <laughs> completing it is a big part of it, right? Yeah. So I tell you like your chances of, well, if you don't finish it, your chances are zero of getting in, exactly. right? Exactly. If you've completed, your chances go up 10x, right? Yeah. That you can, that that, that you're, you're going to come in. 10X. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. But in terms of uh, kind of what are other jobs are like, what do you think people could do who are, who do want to end up in tech, but maybe software engineering isn't for them, which is completely understandable. But in general, like what... Like, what are other opportunities do you see people from the working class could do to enter this tech economy?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I mean, I'll first start again. So, I think just if you don't, even if you don't do well enough on that assessment, doesn't mean you couldn't do it, right? It doesn't mean if like if you just worked hard at it, you put your heart. Out, I think yeah. you could do it. I mean, I'm I'm a big believer that you know anyone can do anything if they really put enough work into it. Yeah. All the test is doing is actually, it's really more for us of who are the candidates that we're willing to invest in, right? Because yeah. our people, we, we pay for the training, right? Our people pay nothing to go through this. So yeah. it's just, it's really more to help us make the right investment decision yeah. in terms of people that were sponsored through this.
0: I mean, it's um, like also the musician thing, right? It's like, it's doing the assessment is like an audition, right? Yeah. If you Just because you didn't pass the audition doesn't mean you can't do it again and work on it. <laughs> exactly.
2: Exactly. And so, but certainly there are lots and lots of other professions in and around tech that whether you're a business analyst, whether you you know you could be a project manager and not be a developer, um, mm-hmm. you know you could be designer, UI, UX, you know DevOps. I mean, you know all the stuff around infrastructure and platforms and systems. There's so many professions in and around it that don't require necessarily coding skills. You know QA, you know automation. There's lots of stuff, right? But again, I think it's there's tech as an tech as an industry, right? So and and we're not even talking about stuff that's outside of engineering, right? So you could be in sales and BD and, you know, and all sorts of other parts of it, marketing, finance, accounting, all of it, part of tech.
1: Yeah, totally. So with your results, which are pretty astonishing, have you gotten attention from local governments or cities that are saying like, hey, come open the center here because we have all these people who need better jobs?
2: Not yet. Um, well, so I would say, yes, we have top, you know, top elite, but we, you know, we, we don't pick our cities that way, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, we have a sort of a process by which we go through to kind of see where we want to go. First most important thing for us to go to is to find sort of clients in that city, right? Mm-hmm. So find local companies that are gonna be willing to work with us. So because you know if you don't have clients, it's really hard for me to get the the yep. engagements for my people to learn. So that's what, number one. Secondly is we actually really like these metro areas that big cities that actually have social economic inequality.
0: Yeah.
2: In, right. Because there we can make the biggest impact. Right. Yep. It's one thing for us to, you know, that's one of the reasons why people keep asking us when are we going to launch in Silicon Valley? Well we don't know, right? I mean, it's it's mm-hmm. it's harder to kind of think about how we there's there's certainly a digital divide here, but it's actually really strange because of the way the geography is that it's mm-hmm. it's you know you don't get the same proximity advantage here as you do mm-hmm. like for example in Baltimore or Chicago or mm-hmm. something like that. So, but you know we we one of the things that I think is really surprising for a lot of governments when they hear about us, and certainly politicians when they hear about us, is that we are doing this with no grants, no yeah. handouts, no assistance from the government. We're doing this, you know, we're doing this basically as, frankly, capitalists, right? We're doing this, you know, and I think that at the end of the day is one of the core theses around what we're trying to do is that we also believe that companies that are organized around a mission can actually be fantastic businesses that actually produce better outcomes that actually better businesses than those that are optimized around economics alone, right? So, you know, this is really a play that we can actually show a much bigger sort of outcome, hopefully a much bigger path that shows that, you know, you don't need government handouts and assistance to actually start making impact in yeah. these
1: problems. And it also shows that the people that you help get the jobs in tech, as they're working for the company, they're also ensuring that you're able to continue to bring others from their communities and their neighborhoods into the tech world too. So it's like a double a double win for them as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's great. So at this point in the podcast, we do the lightning round. <laughs> and uh, this is where we ask you questions. We're trying to get To the strategies and your tactics and your daily routines that you use on a daily basis to get to your level of performance and success. So, with that said, uh, take it away, guys. Yeah. So, um, kind of if you were dropped in a new city, you didn't know anyone, and you only had $100, what would you do, and how would you spend that $100 to get back on your feet and break into tech? <laughs> Good question. Well, I'll tell you something
2: that's worked really well for me uh, through the years. And, you know, you could do this for free, right? But you know, just press a cup of coffee, but I literally have this thing I do. So every week I try to meet one new person, like a random person. Like, And, you know, this is different difference between networking. So it's not really networking. I'm not trying to meet somebody who's going to give me a job or something. You know, it could be anybody, it could be the person who, you know, an Uber driver, it could be someone who's cleaning yeah. my house, right? Well, I'll just literally go have a coffee or have lunch with somebody randomly every week and just get to know somebody, right? Just get to yeah. know their story. And what you find actually is, so over the years, and I've been doing this now for, when I started doing it, I'd been doing this for about yeah, 13 years now. And I started doing this when I was 30. So, you know, so one of the things that's been really interesting is that I've found that all of the big breakthroughs in every company I've ever done, whether it be this, you know, breakthrough investor or this breakthrough mentor or this, you know, uh breakthrough client, came from some random connection I nice. made through this weekly sort of get-together that I did. I don't. So I'm a big believer in just. You kind of have to open yourself up for serendipity. And I believe that's sort of a law of any kind of successful person. You know, it's no surprise to me that every successful person always says they're the luckiest person. Mm-hmm. And I do believe that, you know, serendipity, it's its like a fundamental law of success, mm-hmm. right? It sounds yeah.
1: like karma. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what goes around comes around. Yeah.
2: yeah, and I'm a big believer. Like when it comes to business, too, right? Is yeah. you know make friends first and then do business later. Right? Exactly. And exactly. so I like that. Yeah, I, I don't believe in networking. I think networking is stupid, right? Yeah, Where same. it's just like it's so transactional. Like I'm just gonna network my way to find somebody who's gonna give me something. I believe in you know let's make friends and then build it. Get as many friends as you can, and over time, like that snowballs and something is gonna come out of it.
0: Hundred percent, for, sure. for sure. And you you've made a lot of music analogies uh, during the show. Can you tell us uh, the music that you listen to to get in your zone and get focused? Well, <laughs> geez,
2: that's it's all over the place these days. You know, I have four kids. So uh-huh. I tell you, most of the music that's on my phone these days uh-huh. is, you know, it's like Studio Ghibli stuff, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, like yeah. cartoons and music. So I listen to all kinds. I mean, yeah. I think more and more these days, it's probably jazz, Which... maybe just because I, I don't have that much time and I don't spend that my, much time in listening to music anymore. So I don't I don't keep up with popular music anymore. Yeah. But, you know, I like listening to jazz. I'd frankly listen to a lot of podcasts and audiobooks yeah. and, you know, NPR is that's probably on my radio station. My car is tuned to all the time. So, right, so which podcast. Yeah. Well, breaking into startups. Oh,
1: <laughs> right. You. Good answer. Nice. Well done. Yeah. <laughs>
0: that was the answer. So
1: uh, <laughs> we ask uh, people on our podcast, this like doozy, if you can send out a tweet, the whole world will be able to see. What would you want to say in those 150 characters?
0: Wow. Well. 140.
1: <laughs> Didn't they increase
0: the limit? It's actually bigger than that. Actually. But uh, let's yeah. keep it to the old, uh, <laughs>
1: the old limit: 140 characters. <laughs> <laughs> Gee,
2: that's a, that's a that's a stumper. I guess I would say it's time to kill the resume. Right, bring ah, back the middle class yeah, by I'm killing the, to resume. Kill the
1: resume. Nice. Yeah, I, I really like your point that people don't re- realize that, like, the class divide, like a lot of the systemic issues are caused by our like over-indexing on resume and pedigree. Yes, But if we could get rid of that, then it's going to be actually more mer- like meritocratic, mer- and it's all about what you could do, whether you have the aptitude and not whether you have ten years of experience doing that thing.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, and you mentioned that you have four kids. I do. Yeah. What's the one piece of advice you want to share with them? You know, in relations to what you're working on on a day to day basis with Catalyte.
2: I'd say, well, this is a lesson I try to reinforce as much as I can through their whole life: is to be intentional about what you're doing. Yeah. All right. So many people walk through life not being intentional about what they want to do. And as such, they get whiplashed and pulled in lots of different directions. You know, it's more than just find your passion and things like that. It's really like being intentional about what you're doing and know why you're doing it. That's probably, I think, one of the most important skills for any person who wants to, you know, to succeed in life. Love it, love
0: it. So how can people stay in touch with you?
2: Well, definitely, you know, come to our website. You know, my email is up there as well. They can find my LinkedIn profile up there as well. We put out a podcast
1: as well. Um, oh, yeah. And what's the yeah. website for the people?
2: It's uh, Catalyte.io. C-A-T-A-L-Y-T-E.io. Awesome.
0: And we'll, we'll subscribe to the podcast as well. Thank you, man. Yeah, well, Thank thanks you. For having thanks. Me. thanks. Let's break in.
1: Thanks for checking us out. We appreciate you for listening and always love your feedback on how we can do better. If you enjoyed this, let us know what you thought on the reviews by going to iTunes, searching for Breaking Into Startups, subscribing to our podcast and leaving a review. Also, if you know someone who came from a non-traditional background and is looking to break into tech, encourage them to sign up to our newsletter or tell them to join the Breaking Into Startups community on Facebook. Remember, if they don't want you in through the front door, go through the back door, around it, under it, or through it. Let's break in.